Hi, listeners. Welcome to Spectrum at LBS, a student-led podcast covering geopolitical, social, and cultural issues. Today, we talk to Jan Fowler, an MBA 2021 at London Business School. He is also a former Australian diplomat stationed in China. In this episode, we talked about how is it like for foreigners to live in China, life of a diplomat, rising tension between China and Australia, geopolitics of the Greater China, and why is it important for business leaders to understand geopolitics. Without further ado, I bring you John Fowler. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Spectrum at LBS. My name is Max Zidi and I'm here with Stephen Zhang. And today our guest here is John Fowler, who is here to tell us about his past experiences. Hey John, how are you doing? Good, mate. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good. Um, so just to start things off, could you maybe tell us a bit about yourself, uh, what your background is and what you're doing now, what you did in the past? Uh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll try and keep it short. Um, so I'm obviously an MBS, MBS, MBA student. I've just written about, I've just been writing about um, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. So that's why I said MBS. Um, uh, but I, so I'm doing an MBA. I'm in my second year, almost about to graduate. Um, before this, I was um, a diplomat. Um, I'm Australian, obviously. Uh, and before that, uh, I was a lawyer. So I've got about kind of 10 years to going on 11 years now of working experience. Um, yeah, so that, that's kind of a, me in a nutshell. I was living in China for about five years as well, so yeah. Yeah, so that's quite a bunch. So were you operational only in China or? Yeah, so I guess I guess the best way to think about that is I, I spent sort of eight years in the foreign ministry, what we call our Department of uh, Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, but Four, a, bit, a bit over four actually was in China. So when you're at, when you're in your capital, you're kind of a, a bureaucrat working in the foreign ministry. And when you go overseas, you're a diplomat. So I was, yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you were working, uh, when you were not in China, did you do uh, like what what regions were you most involved with? Was it like also Australia China relationships, or was it more of a wider thing? Uh, no, I was actually an international lawyer. So I um, yeah, so I was um, I did a couple of things. I was Back in, and and I, I wouldn't have the dates to hand, but back in sort of like 20, I want to say 13 or 14, Australia took Japan to the International um, Court of Justice over whaling um, because Japan was doing some whaling in Australian territorial waters or what we call, yeah, actually our EEZ. But um, so I was involved in preparing the Australian case for that. And then I also did a fair bit of legal work about Antarctica um, and the treaties of um, how we how how the world kind of manages Antarctica and all the legal claims to Antarctica. So it was super interesting work, but it was completely. I mean, nothing is unrelated to China in in the modern world, but it was kind of mostly unrelated. Okay, no, that sounds super interesting. But I think uh, today we're here mostly to talk about kind of your experiences living and working as a diplomat in China. So. Um, mm -hmm. What what could you maybe start off by saying what city um, in China you were based in? Yeah, so I spent uh, about fourteen or fifteen months in Beijing, and then I spent about three years in Shanghai. Okay. Uh, now, at the time as we were reporting, uh, re recording this podcast, I think we're both living in in London at the moment. Is that correct? Yep. <laughs> Inside. <laughs> So it's a city, obviously, with a culture that's, I guess, fairly similar to the, the culture that we both grew up in, with super international, super diverse. And I guess in that sense, integrating as a foreigner, especially somebody coming from Australia or from Belgium, in my case, is, is, isn't too hard. However, um, I'm quite curious towards your experiences integrating in, in Beijing and Shanghai. They're known as cities with quite vibrant international communities, I would say, and very open to foreigners. But... Do you feel like it was easy to become integrated in a culture and a society like that? Or was it more of a case that there was a distinct separation between the internationals and the locals? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, so I guess the short answer is there's a pretty, there's a pretty um, big separation between the, the, the sort of locals and the foreigners. Uh, at least some of that is language-based. Like a lot of people who go and live in China can't speak Mandarin, um, which obviously makes it pretty difficult to to integrate um 
I would say also it just depends on why you're there. Like a lot of a lot of foreigners who go and live in Beijing and Shanghai are kind of um, there for a short period or for a, you know a year or two or or even just business like longer business trips. So there's an element of not being really interested in kind of integrate. Like people don't emigrate to China, right? Like people, when people move to America, you move there, you set up a life, you become part of society. That that doesn't happen in China. So yeah, I would say that it, they're pretty separate, but. That's not to say that, you know, living there doesn't mean that you can't engage in the Chinese culture and, you know, Chinese people are super friendly. So if you if you can speak the language, then, you know, you, you'll never be a part of, you know, Chinese society in terms of a government kind of, you don't, you don't get rights and all that kind of stuff that the Chinese people have. But you can, you know, you chat with people and go to bars and restaurants and fully engage in life. So, yeah, it, but it is it is much more separated than London, right? Like, you know, you've got people here where, you know, you're Belgian, but you've got people from Middle Eastern countries or Africa, and they can come here and sort of really integrate. Whereas that that's not the same in China. Yeah, definitely. Do you speak the language a bit or not? Yeah, I do. Yeah, <laughs> which helps, so you... right? Like, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, like, yeah. So I, it, it helps massively. I mean, I was taught because um, part of being a diplomat was that you get trained to speak the language. So it took, I took sort of uh, about eighteen months of full time language training uh, to, to get fluent in Mandarin. So, yeah, I mean, that, and that, and that colors my experience about how much I was able to integrate because it wasn't a problem to travel or to, to chat with people and to meet new people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess if you're there for, for kind of an extended period of, period of time, what was it, um, four years, then you, you are making some additional efforts to integrate a little bit more or not? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you got to have friends and... It was, it was part of my, part of my job was to kind of meet people, but you know, you also don't want to just, or maybe it's just me, but I I don't don't want to sort of just go and only talk to the same couple of people who are, you know, exactly the same as you. I don't really know what the point of going to a a new different place would be if you just kind of take your bubble and shift it somewhere else. And the other thing too, is China is just like such an incredible country to travel in. Um, It's, you know, one of the most geographic, geographically diverse places if not the most geographically diverse country on the planet. And, you know, if you if you only stick to Shanghai and Beijing and maybe Guangzhou and some other big cities where there's enough English speakers, then you're missing, you know, you're missing 95% of the country. Yeah, absolutely. It's well, definitely just speaking the language unlocks just a huge chunk of the world that you can travel to, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Do you notice, I, I guess, well, the answer to this might be straightforward, but do you notice uh, big differences being sort of a Western or an Australia being in Shanghai versus being in the more rural parts of the country? Yeah, yeah it's like incomparable. I, 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 when I was in, in Shanghai, some of our, our employees were Shanghainese um, locals. And even they would like, just like everywhere, right? There's like a, like in America, you've got New York and maybe like, you know, Arkansas or somewhere. And in China, it was very much Shanghai and they could tell all my staff would be like, well, that person's not from the city. They're from the countryside or whatever. Like, so it's like internally, they're super, they're super aware of where people are from. And Shanghai is like their global city, right? It's like, it is their New York. It's their kind of outward looking, super highly educated. You know, there's a pretty high level of English in Shanghai for, for China. Um, But when you go out to the countryside, like there's just completely, it's a completely different vibe. You see how people really live their lives if they're not um, super wealthy because Shanghai is pretty, a pretty wealthy city. Um, and, then, and then that's before you get into the kind of regional differences in China where, you know, there's so many different ethnic communities and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's a, there's a huge difference between Shanghai, even between Shanghai and Beijing, but Shanghai and the countryside for sure. Yeah, Stephen, where 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 are you uh, from in China? I'm uh, I'm from Guangzhou, which is like a small town in Chongqing, which is a super huge city or province if you call it right. But my town is only got like two three million. You yeah. say only two or three million people in a city? That honestly wow. is hilarious to me because yeah, my, my the biggest city in my country is like one and a half million people, maybe. Two to three million is is basically half of the region that I live in, so it's absolutely absurd that you say that. I I remember some statistic, um, roughly that was China has about one hundred and ten cities of over a hundred uh, over a million people, or so, or something like that. 
that, you know, like to, to your point, Max, I think it's like Australia has a city of four or five million, then another one of about two or three, and that's about it. And then China has a hundred of, <laughs> of the same size. And that's before you get to Beijing and Shanghai having like roughly 30 million each. You know, it's just, it's, it's a different scale. Yeah, I guess that illustrates quite well what what just what chunk of the world or what chunk of the population that that you kind of get access to, I guess, when you when you try to integrate in China and when you when you try to learn Chinese. Stephen, do you have any um reflections on what I was saying about China? I obviously you being Chinese, I'd be interested to see if like my my kind of observations on it as an outsider were like make sense to you or there's differences or whatever. Yeah, I I think it definitely makes sense. And and as you mentioned, uh, even Shanghai and Beijing are different, right? Shanghai is much more international, and Beijing is is much more traditional, older. And it makes sense because it's a political center of China, right? It can't be as international and vibrant as uh capitalist as uh, Shanghai, right? And also, uh, just another point regarding the population, there is a huge trend in China right now where. Um, China is building mega cities, uh, as you mentioned, 30 million people, right? Like Chongqing, not just Shanghai and Beijing. There's Guangzhou, Shenzhen. There's Wuhan. There's Xi'an. Uh, it's moving away from the eastern side to the like, inner cities, but mega cities, right? Where the rural population and smaller city population all all go into these bigger ones. Uh, it's it's incredible where uh, things are people and everything happening are congregated by chunks in different areas of China. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, that's super interesting. So I guess maybe this is more of a generic question, but what would you say were kind of the biggest surprise and your biggest surprises as a sort of a Westerner living in China? Um, it's hard to answer. I think, you know, I think if, if, if I reflect on sort of my whole time there, uh, you, no one goes to China thinking it's not going to be different, right? You don't turn up being like, oh, I expect this to be like downtown Sydney or something. But um, I think something that it, it only kind of started to make make sense to me probably a year in to living there was just the different perspective of how ev- like th- the different lens through which Chinese people, and I think lots of different cultures view the same set of facts. So I was thinking about this the other day and it's it's kind of like if you imagine sort of Einstein's relativity idea where like you can look at the same event happening, but it all depends on where you view it from. If you, you know, you're looking at the same facts, but because you have different relative perspectives, it, it looks very different to you. And I, I didn't quite like absorb what that meant until I lived in China. So I'll give you an example. It's you sort of think that like, if I go to Belgium, for example, Max, I, I kind of know that you guys have the same conception of history. You sort of have the same education-ish system, roughly the same kind of uh, societal values. There are differences, obviously, but it, we're, we're, we're sort of singing from the same hymn sheet in, in, a different, in, in a different context, but pretty similar. You go to China and you start off with learning a language. The first thing that any kind of human being does is like... Chinese is not a you know not an alphabetic language. You learn by repetition and 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 sort of just kind of force learning how to read and write, and it and it sort of spews out from there into like a completely different culture. How Confucianism and all the history has uh, sort of influenced how families are built and all this kind of stuff, and then obviously through to modern history where the you know the, the Chinese Communist Party has had a massive impact on day to day life. So all of that kind of boiled down just made like when, when you couldn't assume that when I was talking to someone in China that there were assumed facts or assumed knowledge or assumed cultural perspectives it was kind of like you had to really go back to first principles and go okay what are we talking about what are we thinking about how will Chinese people think about it how can I communicate what I think about it um, I, I guess I, I don't I sort of don't know what an, an, a good analogy would be but it would, it's kind of like imagining that you're talking to someone who just doesn't know anything that you know and then when you when, and they have the same view of you that, that that you don't know anything that they know and then how do you communicate and find the links it's it was pretty fascinating but it was it was surprising once you kind of really get into the deep deepness of that and you kind of have to kind of like okay start again think again you know 
Yeah, you, it's it's a confused answer, but you you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you kind of had to when communicating with people about certain things that you assume to be just facts or common knowledge, you kind of had to throw away all those initial assumptions and start from the ground up. Right, well, and and I think also they have to do the same for us because I mean I don't know what it was like for you, Max, but uh, we didn't really learn a lot of Asian history in Australia growing oh, up. Oh, very little. Yeah, in the 90s, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, Asia's kind of big and it's going to be the future. But I, no one knows the history of kind of like the Khmer regime in Cambodia from the 1500s or what China was like or even Japan beyond kind of maybe some samurai stuff. But it's, it's completely different, whereas I know in depth everything that happened in Europe or America. Um, so you go to China and then a Chinese person is talking with a white person who goes over there and goes like, Oh, I, I don't even know what half of anything you're talking about is. So it goes both ways. It's not me saying that, you know, that, that they don't know about uh, the Chinese people don't know about Western culture, which I think is true, but we certainly need to get a lot smarter on, on, on that front as well. Yeah. I guess the, the limit or for where for most people kind of the limit is of their knowledge about a lot of cultures, what they learn in the, middle schools and in high schools about cult about culture and history and i suppose it is very difficult to cram the entire world's history into one course so in that sense it does make exactly. sense to just focus on your region but indeed then when you're going to travel internationally you you kind of have to then re-lecture yourself on, on all the other things that were happening yeah Steve, and, and you put your finger on it like living and traveling is where is how you you really learn because you, you can read a textbook as long as you want but uh like you know i wouldn't know anything about anything if i hadn't kind of gone and lived and, and worked in places yeah steven um kind of as from the you you kind of have the the opposite perspective them coming from what you call a minor city in china uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh so how did you kind of experience this this coming to london right um so my background is uh kind of similar to john but uh, for me, I, I moved to Singapore when I was 16 years old. I spent past 11 years there, right? But I always also find the, the cultural shock or having to learn everything about the Western culture from scratch. Um, just the exactly opposite of what Joe did, mm. basically, right? And um, uh, it, it's interesting uh, where you don't know anything about another culture, but you got to know in order to really work with someone else from different culture and to understand uh, different perspectives. And I think that really helps. And that's what's still lacking in, in this very, very globalized world right now. Although we, we travel so much and we, we know so much through the internet, through the phone, but um, I don't think we know in depth about, um, let's say, I don't know in depth about uh, the Belgian culture or, or the American or Australian culture, right? Until we really mm. sit down and have um, in-depth conversations and, and, and dig deep because a lot of things we do and how we view this world is shaped by uh, not just culture in our lifetime, but cultures from long, 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 long time ago. And you wouldn't know it just by looking at social medias, especially nowadays. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess in a sense, maybe moving to Singapore because I don't know, the way I, I can have like a, a hugely just stereotypical or hugely like uh, deformed vision of it, but kind of Singapore is in some sense one of the bridge cities between the West and the East, I would say. So uh, moving there probably is a good transition from moving to really inland China to uh, to more to more <laughs> Europe, and I guess the other way around as well. Yeah, exactly. I I will agree. I I remember um like in Singapore um. I still get to keep some of the Chinese culture, but get to learn more about the Western culture. I remember there was one incident where I was working with uh, with uh, a manager from from the United the United Kingdom, right? And uh, the, the how we bonded because uh, we were working so late, and he was saying, "Oh, this this sucks, man. It's it's too late." Then and then then I referred to him. I told him, "Oh, life is uh, uh, brutal, shortish." Um, yeah, you, you know, you know that 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 quote from Thomas Hobbes. Then he was like, "Oh, Thomas Hobbes, you know Thomas Hobbes." Then I was like, "Yeah, I, I knew a little bit about the contra contrarianism and 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 uh, 
Thomas Hobbes, the, the uh, Leviathan. And he's like, wow, the Chinese guy knows about Thomas Hobbes. That's how we got actually close. Then then I really worked with him a lot. So I guess, uh, yeah, an example of how learning about another uh, culture from another part of the world really helps helped me at least uh, to advance through my personal and professional career. Yeah, that's a nice, a nice way to find the link. Um, okay, uh, I'd say we kind of now move on to your professional life, uh, John, because we, yeah, we've kind of talked about the social aspect. Um, I'd say the job of a diplomat is something that for many people will be, uh, who aren't necessarily involved in the international politics may sound a little bit mysterious. So could you just kind of take us through what a day-to-day looks like and what, what, what the types of jobs are that you had to do? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've been asked that question a lot over the last four or five years, and I'm not sure that I've, you know, quite nailed down what what it was that I actually did. But um, I guess I guess the best way of describing it is it's like it's super varied, and it depends on um, where you are and the size of your embassy and whether the country you're in is kind of important. So, to to your country. So, like in terms of. I'll give you an example that for, for me, when we were when I was in Beijing for that year, the embassy in Beijing is is huge. It's, you know, I think one of our biggest embassies. So there's a lot of people doing a lot of work and you kind of get much more specialized in what you do day to day. So you might be covering um, you know, agricultural imports in northern China. And by covering it, I mean you're going out and talking to people who are academics who know a lot about that um, in China or you're talking to companies, business people who are actually importing the stuff and you're saying, what's your experience like? You're gathering all that kind of first, first-hand knowledge and then you're putting it into reports back to, back to home. The aim there is to kind of be, you're almost like an on-the-ground reporter for the Australian government or which whatever, whatever government you, you work for. Contrast that with my experience in Shanghai, which is a much smaller consulate. Um, you know, we had three kind of policy diplomats there, um, four actually, sorry. Um, uh, so what your job would be would be to kind of do everything. So, you know, it would be liaising with Australian business people to figure out how their experience is going. But then the next day I might be talking to a, a professor in, uh, in, in one of the provinces about um, Chinese regional politics. And then the day after that I might be hosting an event for students to try to, you know, say, oh, this is what Australia is like, blah, 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 blah. You have a much more varied role. I guess the analogy might be like working for a big corporate versus a startup. In a big corporate, you've got a pretty specific job and you become an expert at it. And in a smaller startup, you might have to do everything and do a different different kind of jobs day to day. Um, and then again, you know, China is a super important country to Australia. So we always had a lot of resources and people were always watching us and, and kind of keen to hear what we had to say. I've got friends who are posted to Portugal or, or Sweden. And for Australia, that's kind of like, oh, yeah, we get along with them and we we like them, but there's not much day-to-day work going on. So the, their stuff might be much more kind of, you know, just kind of making sure things are ticking over and talking to the government and sort of just, you know, longer-term things rather than day-to-day. Um, so I, it's it's hard, if I had to sum it up, it's kind of like you're half a journalist for the government, like the stuff you write is just for your own government. And then you're half a messenger for your government to the government that you're in. And then you're a little bit of things around the sides as well. Mm. Yeah, that sounds... Well, that sounds <laughs> it's, super it's very complicated <laughs> to explain, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's, that sounds just like you have to be basically a jack of all trades when you're going there. You, no? you really do. And and you know what? Like when we when we get... Like when, we, when I was hired, so I, I got into what they call the graduate program, which is kind of like a you know, a graduate intake um, for, di- for diplomats, you, you're basically taught to be a generalist. You know, you've got to know a bit of law, you've got to know a bit of history, you've got to know a language, uh, kind of be pretty across economics, pretty across trade, just because you never know that you're in a meeting and someone says, oh, X, Y, Z, and you can't just be like, oh, it's not my speciality, sorry, and walk away. You've got to, got to, you've got to know what, at least uh, be able to talk the talk. Yeah. Exactly. So besides the whole reporting and, and investigating, was there also some some like political negotiations that you were involved in? Or not well, you know what, this is this is probably reflective of the fact that I was in China. Um and China conducts its foreign affairs in a very um 
I mean, I, I, I should say here too that all, all, all of these kinds of reflections are my own and they're sort of like I'm not an expert, I'm not an academic expert or anything like that and I don't work for the government anymore. But um, you, there's not a lot of access in the Chinese government. They're not an open government. Um, you know, I've got friends who've been diplomats in America and you become friends with your American equivalent. You know, you can go in and chat to someone in the State Department and say, oh, what are you thinking on X, Y, Z? And they'll tell you. In China, it's much more locked down. Like I, very formal process to get a meeting with um, someone at my level in the Ministry of Ch- Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Very formal and very rarely accepted. They they only really ever talk to you if they want to talk to you about something. Um, so the negotiations are kind of done at a very high level. Um, ambassador, maybe deputy ambassador, minister, someone who has political authority. Um, and at my level, which was kind of much more mid-level, it's um, it's a lot more of the work around the edges, kind of preparing the ambassador for a meeting or going out and talking to people outside of the, the government because the government is quite locked down and they won't talk to you. But, you know, academics might or business people might or civil society might talk to you. Um, so, yeah, I, w- I would say reflecting on my experience in China, I wasn't involved in sort of super high-level negotiations. I was present at lots of high-level meetings as a note taker. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a much more formal process than when you're in a country that you like kind of have a lot of in common with where they let you kind of go and chat much more freely. Oh, that's interesting. So were you trained for this for this kind of cultural difference uh, in any way before? Or did it just kind of throw you out there? Yeah, not, yeah, like sort of, but I don't know how much you can really train for that kind of thing. It's, you have to kind of, I mean, I think what, if, if you asked people in the Department of Foreign Affairs in Australia, they'd probably say, oh, we hire people to have personalities that are adaptable and, you know, quite resilient and all that kind of stuff, because those are the qualities that you need to sort of get through inevitably difficult times in, in a different culture. Like you're going to feel homesick, you're going to feel misunderstood, you're going to feel like things are really difficult. Um, so if you're, you know, if you're if you're very much a homebody and you don't like change, you're going to struggle. But in terms of like specific training for China, I mean, you learn a lot from language training. I would say, like I, I spent 18 months one on one with a, a Chinese teacher in sort of talking and learning Chinese, you can really learn a lot about a culture through the language. I know that sounds kind of an, an esoteric thing to say, but it's true. Like you get a sense into how people think and, and, and the jokes they make and all that kind of stuff. So, but there was no specific, like, this is what China is like, do this. No. Yeah. Okay. I can imagine. But on the other side, during the time that you were, uh, during the time that you were in China, I guess the relationships between China and Australia kind of went up and down a little bit as China, I think, got increasing presence in the in the Pacific Sea, with, which led to some tensions here and there, uh, if I read correctly. So did you feel like um, the attitude of Chinese government officials um, kind of changed towards diplomats or... Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm giving away any kind of secrets when I say that China over the last five years has become a far more, um, a far less open place for foreigners in terms of interactions with the government. I would also argue across the board in terms of doing business and all that kind of stuff. But certainly, my experience and the and the, and the lived experience of a lot of people I know is that um, it, it got a lot stricter i mean an example would be i have a lot of business friends like friends who are doing business in shanghai living there who you know would start off by saying oh yeah we could pretty easily get meetings we had a great relationship with our government with the ministry of commerce or whatever government they needed to do and it was not that hard to get um all the right regulations done to when i left five years later which was what 2019 ish um, saying, oh, you know, we, we really don't have a great relationship with them anymore. It's hard to know what's happening. Um, there was just a vet, there was ever since Xi Jinping kind of got his second term, which was in 2017, I think, he, he, the environment in the lead up to that and, and after it has just been much more, uh, I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but kind of distrusting of outside influences and much more projecting strength. So, you asked about Australia's relationship with them. I think we're just a 
a nat- that's a natural kind of flow from China becoming a bit more um, uh, projecting its power a little bit more. Australia has found itself in the crosshairs because we're in the region. We are ideologically very different. Um, you know, we've done. Uh, not to say that Australia hasn't done things that have upset China. We've our politicians have said some very stupid things from time to time, um, and uh, and whatnot. But overall, I, I mean, you could look at other countries too, like Canada and the US and 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 European countries. Relationships are getting more difficult with China as they start to say, you know, we're a big, powerful country and we're going to do what we want a lot more. Um, I think the reason Australia is getting targeted, or if, if that's true, I mean, I think it is true. But the reason I think is that we're in the we're in the area, right? Like where we're the closest Western, fully Western nation to China. Um, we've been pretty support. We are a huge ally of America's. There's been tension with America, so naturally that means there's tension with Australia. Um, and it and it's 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 probably here to stay, to be honest. Yeah, but what do you think? What are sort of the reasons that this that China has been kind of putting their foot down over the last years? You think? Well, that depends on who you ask, um, and and Stephen might have some interesting ideas on this too. But my my view is that um, well, there's a lot of reasons. One, I think Xi Jinping is a particularly uh, authoritarian kind of leader for China. He there's an old saying that was Deng Xiaoping's saying. For, so Deng Xiaoping was the the first sort of um, unanimous kind of Chinese leader after Mao Zedong died. And he was obviously very famous because he kind of said, oh, well, China's going to open up. We're going to become part of the world now. Um, and he used to say, and I, th- I, I actually think it, it wasn't his quote, but it's misattributed to him. So I'll just say it was him. But I think it was someone else in the Chinese leadership. Okay, we'll put a disclaimer. That, you, you, yeah, exactly. Like it's you know those quotes where everyone says like I think it was Oscar Wilde, but it actually wasn't Oscar Wilde or whatever. Um, but he he said essentially that um, you know you 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 hide your strength and you bide your time. The idea is that you don't show the world how strong you are. You wait because you want to become a a part of the community. Um, and I think Xi Jinping is the first president that China's had who's kind of said right, we're done biding our time. It's time to show the world how strong we are. Um, he's done that internally. He's cracked down massively on kind of um, censorship and uh, civil society. He's made sure that the, the Communist Party in Chinese life is a lot bigger influence. Um, during my time, a lot of companies had uh, what they call like a, a political board installed. So if you're a big enough company in China, you have you know your board of directors who make economic decisions about the company's future, and then you have a a board of Communist Party officials who make sure that those those kind of decisions are in line with Communist Party um, sort of principles. Um, that that's a I mean I think that's a a pretty big development in in the last five or six years. Um, you know you, you've seen a lot of I don't know if you saw that Jack Ma kind of went missing recently. Um, you know one of the world's richest men. He's kind of that that was kind of unthinkable maybe eight to ten years ago in terms of how strong Xi Jinping is compared to a guy who's worth, you know, 50, 60, 70 billion bucks. Well, at least he resurfaced. Um, no. Right, exactly. I mean, he, <laughs> this is the thing. It's, you don't, the, the thing is Xi Jinping is, is the king and you don't get powerful enough to challenge the king. Okay. Um, and, he, and he took over from a very weak president, arguably, um, before him, Hu Jintao. So, yeah. That, that, I think I think one is that Xi Jinping is 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 a particularly strong leader, and I also too think there's this myth in Communist Party politics in China of, um, and I, and I call it a myth just because I think it's not true. <laughs> uh, a lot of Chinese people would disagree with me, but it's the idea that um, the world has kind of humiliated China for a hundred and something years, um, starting with the Opium Wars, which were you know pretty horrific colonialism. And I don't think anyone with a brain defends that kind of colonialism, but kind of blaming, you know, the last hundred years of China's difficult history on on outside forces. But the narrative that Xi Jinping is promoting is China's coming back to power. It's the Chinese dream. It's inevitable. You can't stop it. It means that Hong Kong is part of China again. It means that Taiwan inevitably becomes part of China again. It means that China is kind of feared and respected and loved and stuff all around the world. Um but you can't get there just by politely playing with the Americans and sort of, you know, 
allowing America to run the world, you kind of have to challenge them at some point. Um, and I think, I think Xi Jinping figures that this is the right time to do it. It's a long answer to your question, but it's a very complicated question. Yeah, I know. I wasn't expecting uh, kind of a one-liner. <laughs> oh, I'd be interested, so- Stephen, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's a lot. Uh, it's a lot to unpack. Um, some things I agree, some things I disagree, right? But uh, I, I don't know how much detail can we get into here. But um, uh, in general, what I agree with, I think it's true that uh, there's general sense that uh, it's, it's time for China to, to rise up, right? And, and as you mentioned that, uh, there's a sense where uh, China was a very powerful country long, long time ago until, until the Western, um, Westernization as well as industrialization took over, right? And the Enlightenment and everything happened in the West. Well, in, in, in China, like the, the kings and the queens are just, uh, you know, uh, it's doing nothing, right? And, and, and until, until the West has become so strong and China was, as you mentioned, humiliated for 100 years or something, right? And then there was a sense that well, right now we are in a really good position to, uh, to be the leader of the world again. And uh, as you mentioned again, Xi Jinping is a very strong leader, and he projected as himself as a powerful leader. And um, I think a lot of factor why China has become assertive nowadays has to do that with the weakening of the United States as well, both in terms of. Um, their economic power, as well as in terms of political power, right? Um, it's a lot to unpack there as well. But overall, I would say that democracy in in these years, in the past five or ten years, has shown cracks through various civil arrests. You know, a lot of problems. Where then is a perfect opportunity for let's say China to right to project its power and oh, why why can't we need again? So so that that part we I definitely agree with you then on why China has become more assertive. But whether is it too much or is China trying to rule by fear or is China trying to rule by love? I'm not sure sure. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess you made some good points there. Definitely, democracy in a lot of places, in a lot of countries in Europe, in America, has been suffering a little bit, um, to say the least. And this is probably ideal opportunity for for a country like China that suffers those problems a little bit less to to kind of jump in there. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, uh, very quickly on that, I I have I have a slightly different. I, I'm kind of like known as a bit of a contrarian amongst my close friends. Um, but I actually I actually feel like the Trump situation, and obviously I'm politically, you, you'll guess my political biases here too, but I feel like it's quite contrary to democracy being under pressure or, I mean, it's certainly under pressure, but it within four years, America elected a guy who was clearly ridiculous and clearly authoritarian and clearly entirely inappropriate to lead a country. And within four years, and a lot of pain and stress and pressure, but within four years, they peacefully got rid of him, mostly peacefully got rid of him. And he's, and he's, and he's largely gone, right? Um, that, that to me strikes like as, a, as an amazing kind of tick in the box for democracy and liberal institutions that, you know, you can have a guy who, and I, don't, I honestly don't think it's hyperbole to say, is a was a real threat. Had had fasc, you know fascistic tendencies like like other leaders throughout history, and within four years he's kind of gone. Strikes me that that's a that's a big plus. Anyway, well he is gone, but it it did take a big toll. I mean we're still feeling the aftershocks right now, so I wouldn't exactly say that this happened a hundred percent peacefully. If you look at what happened with the the Capitol building, but then on the other side you could also say that Trump was. Uh, kind of an American, for America first leader who took kind, who took fairly harsh policies against uh, against Korea, against China. So one could actually say that, um, in a sense, he did try or he did play uh, his part in kind of stopping or giving some counterforce against the rise of China. Oh, I don't think there's any question against that. I, I think um, the, the the way I've been putting it, that even even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? And um, he he, I don't think he got China policy right. He made a lot of mistakes in it, but the general vibe of 
saying, okay, well, it's let's let's stop pretending that China is going to integrate politely into the West and become a, a liberal de- democratic country. Let's say they're a competitor, and let's let's call a spade a spade. Um, he he definitely did that, and I don't think that Hillary Clinton would have done that in the same way. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, and it'll I guess it'll be interesting to see how it's going to evolve with uh, Biden's policy as well. But okay, I, I think this would take us a little bit too far in this. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> How do you see the relationship between China and Australia evolve in the future, actually? Um, it's, it's a tough one. Um, it, 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 I think a lot of it, because Australia is so much weaker than China, um, where this kind of you know tiny fish compared to the, the big whale, um, I think a lot of it depends on how China, how, how, how hard China wants to push us, how much they want to assert themselves. But, you know, there are... If you're a Chinese, like listening to a Chinese politician or a Chinese um, government official, they'll say Australia wants to thwart the rise of China and like keep us under the foot. We love America. We're just trying to make America big in the, you know, still own Asia. And and an Australian who who's kind of particularly, um, hawk, you know, hawkish or what they would call anti-China would say China's, you know, a terrible place and we need to, you know, stop the human rights abuses. And I hope that the future is in between that. I hope the future is a a situation where both sides can kind of agree to disagree. Like we're never going to be a communist party. It is fundamentally not in our culture or in our bones to think that the state or the government should be as powerful as China's is. Um, We're never going to give up. Well, we're not never going to, but it's going to be very difficult for us to give up our alliance with America and the UK and the West. We are a Western country. and if China tests those kinds of things, it, it won't go well for any of us. But by the same token, Australia has to acknowledge that we can't change the way China is. We can certainly influence things like um, the Xinjiang kind of Uyghur human rights issues. We can influence South China Sea policy. We can influence other things a little bit, but we can't change China. Um, I hope that there's some ground in the middle where we can say, Let's work together on. And during my time in China, there were lots of things that no one knows about in terms of like drug enforcement and and trade and and peacekeeping operations that China and Australia, China and the world work really closely together on with 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 you know very little um, difficulty. Actually, going back to Antarctica, China and Australia work really really closely together on Antarctica. I think some Chinese um, research vessels recently rescued an Australian. Um, scientist in in Antarctica and, and they have a long history of cooperation all these things below the surface go on day to day without a problem so my hope is that at the political level that the differences which will stay and are not going away and shouldn't go away frankly I'm I'm not someone who thinks that we should appease China but I'm also not someone who thinks that we can change them so hopefully you can contain that high level political stuff and you can continue the working level stuff i mean i'm not super sure that will happen but we'll see yeah do you think china will well it's almost it's almost certain that china will keep uh, expanding its presence or keep uh, keep showing its power a bit more um you mentioned earlier about the 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 hong kong situation the taiwan situation um do you think the reintegration of those areas into china is bound to happen, is inevitable? Uh, so first, first I would say it's like, yes, China will continue to project its power, but like if I was Chinese, I would want it to. It's a giant country with 1.3 billion people. It deserves to have, you know, a seat at the top of the table because it is, it is hugely important. Um, so I, I think, yes, it will project its power. I think anybody who thinks that it shouldn't or it won't is ridiculous. Um, that's what big countries do. America has been doing it for 200 years um the uk did it for hundreds of years europe's been doing it you know for you know almost a thousand years so of course they will what so with regard to hong kong and taiwan hong kong is hong kong is a different situation to taiwan i think hong kong was a colonial property um there was a treaty what china's done there i think recently has broken the treaty like the understanding of the treaty being sort of slowly reintegrated back, Hong Kong being reintegrated back into China. But, you know, it, it's hard to kind of say a treaty 
has been broken when it was kind of you know signed at gunpoint and hong kong is clear hong kong is clearly china right like it, i don't think there's any difference i mean it's hor- i think it's horrific what's going on there with the crackdown on pro democracy activists but it's um it's a very different issue to taiwan which is you know that that, that is a, a situation where after the civil war the the losers of the civil war ran away to taiwan it then got sort of colonized by japan it's got a very different history and and it's a very different place now it's it's um it's self-governed they've had a pretty strong democracy they've clearly voted a number of times recently to to not be part of china they they want to be seen as an independent country you can argue about how much america's involved in that and how much their america's kind of influence is distorting the truth there but I think it's a very different situation and and it's a good question because I think that is Taiwan is where all of the problems will come from. Like if if there is a problem with China in the world in the next 20 or 30 years that doesn't get contained, like there'll be lots of problems generally as as there are in the world always, but if there's one that has the potential to become you know a catastrophic problem, it's Taiwan. Um it is 100% in the Chinese Communist Party myth and ethos to say Taiwan must become part of China again. Uh, I think it's probably something that they'll want to do in certainly before the hundred years of the People's Republic of China is up in 2049. Like that, you know, these numbers and these symbolisms are very important. That if you can say that a hundred years after the revolution in China, we restored the country to its great former power, that's you know, that's a very persuasive kind of um narrative to tell the question is how will that happen will america go to war over it will the world go to war over it will it even come to war or will china be able to kind of undermine taiwan from the inside and make it sort of look more like hong kong lots of questions but that that's the big one yeah do you think a lot of like uh, do you think other countries like powerhouses like america will try to show their muscles in this situation in in Taiwan you mean yes uh yes i think well as it stands now china would have to militarily invade taiwan to take it back because it's pretty clear that taiwan doesn't want to go become part of china that is a big challenge to the global order right like that's a big superpower saying we're going to like forcibly expand our borders that has a lot of kind of not very nice historical kind of um resonance with the way big wars have started in the past um the 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 problem is it would be a catastrophic war china it's it's in china's backyard their their military is a lot less strong than america's but it is right next to um china so they they have a lot more control over the airspace and the water would do i think america would defend it right now i mean i just don't know i don't think i, I mean i don't think china would try to do it now because they'd probably lose the war but in 30 years, 20 years, that might look very different. Would America then, would the world then go to what is essentially a possible like spark for World War Three over Taiwan? It, it depends on so many things, right? It depends on who's in charge. Like if you have Trump in charge, maybe. Yeah, it's it's basically impossible to prophesize about this. Uh, it is, but you know what you, what you can do is you can draw a line back from those kinds of big unknowns and say what, what's going to happen in the lead up is going to be a lot more volatility and instability around issues like this. Like we don't know how the Taiwan situation will like resolve itself, but that's a huge tension. And when there's tension in a relationship, it kind of, the the pressure elsewhere needs to sort of blow off. So, you, you know, it might be, it might be in other areas. It might be in other things that you can't predict, but you can predict as a whole that things are going to get more volatile. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, that's very interesting. Just uh, maybe one last thing. Um, we've talked about a lot of sort of geopolitical uh, topics now. Do you think, uh, in the wider sense, that it's important for business leaders to understand geopolitics? And uh, because I understand that you have your newsletter, International Intrigue. Um, and if I am not mistaken, you tried to. You try to attempt to bring in geopolitical uh, geopolitical uh, topics there. So, do you think it's important for business leaders to understand geopolitics and and what what kind of is your role there, or what what part do you play with your newsletter? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's a good way to lead on from the last question too. It, whereas like if you, if you see a world now that I think, I, I mean, I'm convinced is going to be a lot more volatile and unpredictable. Um, but we are a global country, you know, we're not uh, a global world. We're not, um, you know, it's not 1920s where relations were conducted, international relations were conducted government to government. The, the vast majority of international relations are conducted by people, by businesses, by travelers, by immigrants, by, you know, non-government um, entities. So, you know, if you sit there and say, well, the last 30 years of the world have been relatively stable at the big level. I mean, there's been horrific wars and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that everything's been great, but, you know, it's been relatively predictable. If you want to invest in in Europe, you can do that. There are rules. If you want to trade with Singapore, you can do that. There are rules. If If what I'm saying is true about more volatility and that the world is kind of run by people rather than governments in terms of international commerce and all that, then it strikes me that people who are involved in that are going to need to know how it all works. Last 30 years, you probably didn't need to know so much. You go, oh, well, I'll just invest in in, Tawa, in Thailand and I'll pay a lawyer and it's all very well and good. But you, if, if the next 30 years, say, are going to be more volatile, you need to have a strategy that takes in geopolitics, that, under, that, that understands uh, trade trends, that understands business trends, that you, know, you want to need to understand political forces like nationalism, because if you make a big investment in a country that is politically leaning towards the far right or the far left, how safe is that investment? All, all that kind of stuff. Um, but as, you know, may, maybe it's at the moment it's confined to hedge funds and finance people who do this kind of risk analysis as their core work. I think it's going to spread out to like, you know, take, take for example, if you're employed by a tech company after graduation. I have, a, I have a long theory, which I won't go into, which is essentially that most of the wars are going to be fought via tech um, and supply chains and hacking and this kind of stuff, um, rather than hot wars. So if you're in a, if you're if you go work for Google, you can't very well turn up there and say, "Oh, I have no idea about you know the semi semiconductor supply chain. Um, I have no idea about how Russia kind of tries to infiltrate um, American uh, politics for its own own good." Or, you know, you you can't be naive to these things and how they work. Um, and certainly if, you know, um, this is my, I guess my pitch for the newsletter is that if you're, if you're at LBS or doing an MBA or in any way thinking that you're going to take on a leadership role in the future, if you care about sort of the, the environment that you live in, in the world that you, that, that we're inheriting, you have to understand the forces that are, that are forging it. And it's not good enough to say that, you know, the end of history was the fall of the Soviet Union and liberalism is the way forward. It's, you need to understand that, I mean, for example, what happens if the EU falls apart? What does that look like for everybody who's doing their MBA now and says, oh, I, I, had, a, I had hoped I'd go and work for private equity in, you know, Belgium. Well, what if there's no EU? How does that affect it? Like, what does it mean? Like, what can you do as a country to make sure, as a, as a company to make sure that doesn't happen? Um, so I think there's just so much more tied into to, to business than than we might have thought previously in terms of politics, social good, geopolitics. That you can't just say, "Oh, I, I study marketing and that's enough." Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, Stephen, do you have any closing remarks or questions? No, I think that was a fantastic session. Um, thank you, John, for being here. It's uh, such a pleasure to have you. <laughs>